Welcome. You are listening to Central Synagogue's podcast, featuring sermons, lectures, and conversations from Manhattan's historic Central Synagogue. I'm Rabbi Angela Bookdahl. Each week, we invite you to listen to messages of strength and hope given by our clergy on Shabbat or Jewish holidays. You can also listen to audio recordings of other programs and lectures given at Central by subscribing to this podcast on the platform of your choice. If you'd like to watch our live stream services or learn more about our congregation, I invite you to visit us at centralsynagogue.org. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. And raise me up to a world living, oh, safe from the storm, in the shelter of your shadow. When someone we love dies, we're often told that our grief will change over time. Not that it will get lighter necessarily, but that we will grow more accustomed to its weight and more able to move forward even though we carry it with us. Perhaps this expectation comes out of a kind of blind faith that the initial gut punch of grief cannot possibly last forever. Because if it did, how could anyone continue to bear it? Our tradition's approach to mourning echoes the expected arc of grief's evolution. For Shiva, the first seven days, it signals that in in that initial throes of grief, the world can expect nothing of us except to mourn. We are not expected to work or leave the house or even make conversation. For those seven days, mourning is our full-time job. And then during Shloshim, the first 30 days, our tradition allows us to re-enter the world, but absolves us of the obligation to celebrate. And finally, it recognizes the special nature of that first year after we lose someone, as we make our way through each season, through each birthday and holiday without them for the first time. Only after we have unveiled their headstone do we mark the end of that first fragile and tentative year. We are told and may even believe that our grief will change and become more bearable over time. But what we may not realize in those early days and months of mourning, when the immediacy of our loved one is still so fresh in our minds and our hearts, is how our relationships with those we have loved and lost will continue and change and grow over the years, even though they are gone. Lucy Kalanithi, whose husband Paul wrote the book, When Breath Becomes Air, about his experience with illness and dying, wrote this in the book's epilogue. Paul is gone, and I miss him acutely nearly every moment but I somehow feel I am still taking part in the life we created together. She quotes C.S. Lewis who wrote, bereavement is not the truncation of married love, but one of its regular phases like the honeymoon. What we want is to live our marriage well and faithfully through that phase too. 
Though I can no longer comfort Paul, she continues, the other vows I made on our wedding day to love Paul and keep and honor him stretch well beyond death. Caring for our daughter, nurturing relationships with family, publishing this book, pursuing meaningful work, visiting Paul's grave, grieving and honoring him, persisting, my love goes on, lives on in a way that I never expected. Our continued relationships with those we love can take many forms. We may continue the pastimes that we enjoyed with them, hiking or going to the theater or completing the Sunday crossword, which naturally brings us back into conversation with them as we imagine what they might have said or reflect on what they taught us. We may pass on their wisdom to the next generation or tell their jokes at our family gatherings or maintain their legacy by giving to causes that were dear to them. And many of us find that our relationships with those we love not only continue, but change as time goes on. The growing wisdom and experience that come with living and working and parenting and grandparenting can change the way we relate to our loved ones who preceded us in those roles. Perhaps we look back with a little more grace or compassion on our own parents when we are in the throes of parenting adolescence. Perhaps we can appreciate more fully the joy they took in our children when we have grandchildren of our own. Perhaps after living a life full of mistakes and missteps, we can find it easier to give them the benefit of the doubt and to presume that however short they fell of our aspirations, they might have been doing the best they could. Or maybe our growing strength and resolve will mean that we stop struggling to forgive what cannot be forgiven and to carry on nonetheless. The beauty and wisdom of Yizker is that it allows us to connect the memory of our loved ones to the particular moment that we are living in right now. We say Yizker, of course, on Yom Kippur, but also on each of the three festivals of Passover in the early spring, Shavuot in early summer, and finally on Shemini Atzeret at the end of Sukkot in the fall. These were pilgrimage festivals when the Jewish people would come together as a community and make offerings of that season's harvest. The Torah instructs us that we are not to show up on these occasions empty-handed, but each bearing our own gift according to what God has granted us. And just as our ancestors offered barley on Passover and wheat on Shavuot, our offerings for Yizker differ too, depending on the season. On Sukkot, we might carry with us the memory of summer or the news of a child beginning school for the first time. In the spring, we may carry the gratitude of having survived another winter or the delight of seeing a grandchild find the afikomen in the same hiding spot our parents once used. And on Yom Kippur, spurred by hours of accounting, perhaps we can offer up a sense of who we really are in this moment, broken and holy, 
seeking the comfort and encouragement that our loved ones would have offered us and the assurance that we are loved just as we are. The students of the Kotzka Rebbe are said to have asked him why Shavuot is called the time the Torah was given and not the time we received the Torah. The Rebbe answered that indeed the giving of the Torah took place on one day, but the receiving of Torah takes place across time, in fact at all times. Commenting on this story, Rabbi Joshua Caruso says, Maybe our loved ones who have died are like the Torah. We keep receiving their wisdom long after they were given to us. The purpose of Yizkur is not only to allow ourselves to feel the absence of our loved ones in this particular moment, but also to allow our relationship with them to continue to live and evolve to consider how we continue to receive and embody their wisdom, to ponder what they would have thought about a particular turn that our life has taken, perhaps a direction they never would have imagined, to imagine what they might say if they were here to witness this season, to continue our conversation with them. In a moment, we will hear the words of our memorial prayer and have time for silent reflection And in that silence, I invite you to bring with you the offering of your own life in this season, to ask the question you would love to ask, or offer the apology that you can now see you need to offer, perhaps only with the wisdom that the past five or 10 or 20 years has given you, to catch them up on a turn your life has taken since you last said Kaddish for them. What would you want them to know about you in this moment? If it doesn't come to you, that's okay. Yizkir comes around so often because we need it to. As we continue to move through this life to grow and change, surrounded by the evolving legacy of those we have loved and lost. Thank you for listening to this edition of Central Synagogue's podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you're in the loop on future episodes. And please follow us on social media or watch our live stream at centralsynagogue.org, our Facebook page, or on national cable at the Jewish Broadcasting Service. Thanks again for joining us. Day.